Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Our guest today is Jordan Gasper, the managing partner at AF Ventures. AF Ventures is dedicated to growing the next generation of brands, having invested in Circle, By Heart, and Harmless Harvest. We discuss how she founded AF Ventures and was able to leverage her network as a lawyer, how she thinks about growth today for digitally native brands, and how she thinks about growth and investing today in digitally native brands. Without further ado, here's Jordan. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great, thanks. I'm great. So I would love to hear a bit about the early part of your story and what was your initial attraction to consumer brands? A little bit about us. AF Ventures is a consumer fund that has over 30 portfolio companies across the consumer landscape of food and beverage, health and wellness, beauty, personal care, and pet. Um, We're big investors in plant-based products, grain-free food, functional beverage, and now more recently, you know, we have a strong thesis around early childhood nutrition and personalization. We typically are looking for companies that are between, say, five and twenty million of revenue at the time of investment, with the expectation of growing, you know, hopefully one hundred percent year over year. And you obviously thinking about a lot of the same, you know, key value drivers as other investors in the space, but. Um, investing in brands that are authentic and sustainability-minded and really thinking through what are you know interesting channel expansion opportunities and scalable supply chains and all the other kind of KPIs. A little bit about you know, kind of where we came from. You know, we, we started our fund a little differently than some of the other ones in the space in that we ourselves um, were a very small organization that launched a very small pool of capital you know, at this point, eight years ago, and we've grown, and our capabilities and our experiences deepened in the space. I think that, you know, for me personally, my background is I was a corporate lawyer. I primarily practiced in the middle market and private equity, and anyone who's had a chance to catch up with me, you know, hears me often make the joke that I'm a reformed lawyer now, not even a recovering lawyer at this stage. <laughs> so I started the business when I was eight and a half months pregnant with my second child. It was an exciting time time for me I you know was you know entering into a new phase of my life I had you know recently um, had a member of my family who'd had substantial health problems um, over the years before and I had started to really thinking to think about prioritizing healthy food in a way I hadn't really before and so Back in those days, it was really before there was this sort of strong venture climate in the space. You know, we saw that there were some institutional growth funds that had cropped up, um, but there really weren't venture funds. And, you know, there were, you know, some angels that were kind of carrying the space through those sort of early sort of gestational periods of young brands. But I really wanted to get involved investing in at that time what were, you know, sort of sub million dollar companies. Things you know have clearly evolved you know through our portfolio maturing and you know our business, um, but you know our roots were really investing in sort of these earlier stage companies that we've now um, found a sweet spot in. I'd say sort of this emerging growth stage. That's amazing. That's amazing. So I guess to back up and start, you know, when you were thinking about starting AF Ventures, it seemed so when you were eight months pregnant and you decided to start AF. Like walk me through a little bit because. It seems like since you were a corporate lawyer, working in 
middle market private equity. So you, of course, knew a lot of the players or, or had like an, an incredible network in private equity. But this was still a career pivot. Is that right? Oh, 100%. In that, in that you were like, that's, that's incredible. That's incredible. And so like, what was the reason why you wanted to switch over instead of, you know, having private equity shops and venture capital shops hire you as a lawyer? Why did you want to switch over to first, you know, become an investor and also, why did you choose to start your own fund versus joining one? And then why did you feel like that the timing was right for you? So it's funny, I never even at the time considered going in-house at a fund. I actually wanted to start my own business. So you know, it, as much as we are a fund, you know, I've always looked at this business through the duality of we're a fund, but we also are our own small business. And so we really built out you know, certain areas of our business similarly to the companies we invest in. And so it wasn't even part of my frame to be totally candid to go in-house. At the time you know, when I made the decision, it was back during sort of that big recession and there was a bloodlet of lawyers you know, losing their jobs. And you know, you know, when you're an attorney, you have something called a rabbi, and um, that's sort of someone who's uh, looking out for you internally and kind of making sure that you're on track um, to ultimately continue you know, sort of uh, supporting, or I'd say continue to succeed at the firm. And I had survived a couple rounds of layoffs and had heard that I was on track. And I realized that it wasn't my dream. You know, and I think that I've always been an aspirational person. I invest in aspirational founders. I've I feel you know that this is not you know solely about numbers for me you know and so for me it was that I wanted to you know, own my own business and and you know really help other entrepreneurs in their own businesses and take some of the skills that I had learned as an attorney but apply those skills to other small businesses in a way that I felt like was a little bit more constructive from the entrepreneur's perspective. That's amazing. I mean, what kind of steps did you take to establish relations with the LPs, convince LPs to invest in in your fund, and how did you think about as well structuring your fund? So, you know, it's like any other early stage company. You know, there's a set of investors that come in that are friends and family that are backing you because they believe in you and they believe in whatever you you're putting your mind to and your efforts into. And then there were people that we met along the way and that I had met along the way that ultimately were excited about the prospect of what we were doing. You know, the, the first iteration was you know, sort of short-lived in that it was stage one of what was ultimately going to be the fund that we are today. And I think that you know, there were people who understood that we were looking to apply professionalism to investing in a, a stage of a life cycle of companies that really at the time hadn't seen that yet. And so they respected sort of that hybrid of you know, professionalism with passion and conviction in the brands. Um, but the business, you know, we did change, and and our organization changed. You know, obviously, we went from being Excel Foods, you know, to AF Ventures, and um, ultimately, we started working with companies that were a little bit more established. And also, we had you know companies that grew to the next stage. And you know, we had to always be thinking about developing the resources to best able you know sort of work with and support those companies. But I'd say that early period was a lot of grit, a lot of determination, and truthfully, <laughs> probably not even considering that it could fail. You know, you have to be an entrepreneur. You just have to believe in yourself, right? And you have to think that no matter what I do, you know, failure is not an option. It'll succeed. I think you mentioned how when you first started, you were investing smaller amounts of capital. Is that right? Uh, than now. So were you in the same stage that you wanted to be when this five to 20 million in revenue stage for companies making smaller checks? Or were you actually had to go earlier into more of like the earlier stage part of venture capital? 
So the early design of this was to invest in sub-million dollar revenue generating brands. It wasn't a strategic kind of tactical decision to enter one point to end up at another. I think that our business just grew. And I think that the resources that we had available grew and the capital under management grew. We were able to take a different role with the companies. And I think the, the industry changed, right? There more capital came into the space in the past eight years. You know, and it, it was all of a sudden um, a moment in time where you saw you know, a lot of corporate venture arms crop up and, you know, a lot of strategics started to think about the space a little bit more with a little bit more of an open mind. More and more funds moved up, you know, sort of later stage. And, and so that opened up more opportunities for new funds to come in and sort of fill those voids. And then there was you know, wealth creation with entrepreneurs that had sold their businesses, right? And, and who had, you know, wanted to redirect that into investing in other founders. So I just think that we saw the industry change a lot at the same time. When you were investing at the earlier stage at the beginning, of uh, AF, what was your criteria evaluation and what did founders need the most help in when they're just starting out and maybe like sub million dollar sales or, or maybe just about there? You know, I don't think that founders need so much that's so different. I mean, I mean, right now we're all in the new landscape of sort of post COVID, right? And so I, I don't think we can look at this anymore and say, do, what do founders need? You know, as small brands, what do founders need as big brands? I think we're all navigating right now how has COVID impacted these businesses at any stage. And so, you know, for us, I'd say probably more more to focus on is how are brands navigating, you know, what is like a global supply chain crisis, a labor shortage, right? You know, bringing in key team members, you know, raw material shortages, you know, quality assurances, how to manage, you know, getting on shelf, staying on shelf and marketing to a very rapidly changing consumer purchasing habit. So, you know, I would say that I, I wouldn't so much, you know, draw the distinction now about early stage companies versus later stage companies, because there's obviously very different challenges. I think right now, all entrepreneurs are navigating similarly, you know, more the macro landscape. No, that makes sense. That makes sense in terms of um, not putting them both in, in two different camps. I just always love hearing at the earlier stages when you don't have a ton of sales, right? You don't have a ton of revenue. It's a lot more heavy on the actual founder itself and the actual, maybe the reason how you actually get conviction. What maybe are some of the characteristics within founders that you like to see and maybe that you invested in or that really that actually just led to an investment from you? Like resourcefulness, resilience. You know, I think that people who are nimble in addressing challenges, people are transparent. You know, transparency is something that's extremely important to build you know, the relationship constructively with any partner, but let alone your investment partner. I've always been a big believer in investing behind you know, the jockey and really you know, making sure that I feel comfortable kind of with you know, what's driving them, you know, what, what, what makes them, what motivates them, and, and what are their objectives personally and professionally. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I would love to know how you think when you're kind of evaluating companies, how you actually think about the price and accessibility versus you know the actual uh, better for you part of the product. Um, I think obviously with the better for you sets of products, you know, they're premium quality ingredients, and I think you can't replace quality, right? And and consumers are demanding quality and and transparent sourcing models. Um, but you know the reality is is that people you know. Everybody is still price sensitive in some respect, and so I'd say you know for us we have definitely um, increasingly been aware of investing in in platforms and products that we think are 
uh, priced appropriately for the masses and that they have widespread appeal and the capabilities to be adopted by a wider audience. Um, it doesn't mean, it, this doesn't, you know, mean that you're, we're not going to have amazing companies that are at a premium price point that are not going to be very successful. Um, but I think the, the kind of scale that you're talking about, you know, there's some key attributes. Like they have to be priced in a way that people can afford to, to buy the products again and again. Like that velocity is going to be really important. That makes sense. I mean, also, do you think that when it comes to better for you nutritional products, in order for you to be interested, does it need to work in conventional retail or just retail in general for you to be interested? So omni-channel distribution is part of our investment thesis. We expect our portfolio companies to be able to meet the consumer where they shop the most, which is in store. But over eight of our most recent companies have been digitally native. Um, And so part of what we've really enjoyed is being able to help those companies think through their channel expansion and navigate some of the challenges there. I think that with you know, in particular, you know, once you see you know, brands who achieve you know, a nice amount of scale, um, D to C, they have a lot of insights and data, and it's a really high-functioning business that ultimately can you know, be expanded upon to work really effectively with a retail. You know, sometimes in, in that respect, we're seeing companies that are you know, very, very successful that just need sort of some transition support. And ultimately, you know, they know their consumers really well. You, know, you think about personalization as a perfect example. You know, we led the, the last round for Circle, which is an amazing digitally native beverage technology platform. And it's a device business that ultimately covers several different you know, you know, key areas of focus for us. You know, there's a sustainability aspect, there's a personalization side, but it is, going back to what you asked about, sort of a pricing model, it is priced for the masses. That's really helpful. And I think in terms of since, you know, Omnichannel is very much part of your investment thesis or, or strategy, I had a conversation with Ernesto Schmidt, um, who is one of the co-founders of The Craftery, and he was saying how, he believes that brands are going way too early. Um, Disney brands, of course, are going way too early into retail. I know Target and Walmart are becoming very, very competitive and maybe going earlier and earlier with bringing in Disney brands and testing them out in, in their stores. I just would like to hear from your standpoint. Overall, when does it make sense for a Disney brand to head into retail, do you think? It just depends on the category, and ultimately, um, you know, there is a difference, you know, between you know, ambient products and what's going to be, you know, fresh products, frozen products. Like you, you can't really kind of just sort of sweep and say uh, that you know brands have a certain point in their life cycle. But I, I do think that there is sort of a natural point that you know, I think that a digitally native brand, you know, has achieved scale and has reach their consumer and you know they have their super fans and they they've been developing their products and they've really uh, mastered their current business when it makes sense then to then tackle what is you know, ultimately a big expansion into retail. Got it. You brought up an interesting point too about how um, earlier how corporates are wanting to go are actually wanting to invest their capital into early stage and also early stage companies and uh, strategics are kind of are launching their own corporate venture arms. What are your thoughts around that? Because I've had investors on the show that say, you know, we get pretty wary when a corporate venture arm is on a cap table of a company that we're 
worth pursuing because when it comes to the actual exit landscape, it diminishes the actual ability for possible buyers. Would it deter you if if a company you were looking at to invest in, they were interested in also pursuing a partner that was from a corporate venture capital arm or even had already a corporate venture capital arm on their cap table? It, it would not deter me. Um, I think signaling risk is a very real issue. Um, and I think it just you know, ultimately depends on who the investor is and what's the motivation behind the investment, what's the structure. You know, it goes back to sort of the lawyer and me is you know, what rights do they receive as part of that investment? You know, we've been fortunate to have you know, co-invested alongside a couple of strategics and they've been very successful outcomes for us, right? You know, we look at um, obviously our partnership with Harmless Harvest was a great success story for Danone. So I'd say that I totally respect you know other investors' apprehension. I think in our particular case, we've seen it work well. That's not to say that we haven't seen it not work out. I think it's just being mindful of the specific dynamics and, you know, sort of understanding, you know, the risks that you're taking alongside that strategic, you know, if it doesn't go well. That makes sense. I think it probably, I'd imagine, also comes down to, or maybe doesn't, but how separate their venture capital arm is maybe from their core business. Like, I know, like, Unilever, it's, like, completely separate. And so I think... Um, so I could imagine that um, just to see maybe how the actual separate pieces from their business also maybe that or or also how or how distinct the business that's being invested in is from the business unit's priorities is probably more what I would you know, think think through is is this a company solving a problem for the strategic's business unit right and, and and does this drive their core business is this in scope out of scope is it a new technology for them does it require some internal educating in terms of the value that the company could provide if it was acquired there's just it, i think it's even more so about the specific company and how it fits into the roadmap of the strategic not just near term but long term yeah that's a really good point as AI Ventures developed over the past few years what are some recent trends that you become very, very passionate about? So obviously early nutrition. Exactly. <laughs> so, exactly. Um, I mean, big focus. You know, we've made investments in the past year in Yumi, which is a clean label you know, sort of Project Purity Award recipient um, with a direct-to-consumer organic plant-based food service targeting babies and toddlers. Um, and they have a proprietary predictive analytics model, which is pretty exciting. Ready Set Food, which is it's a really interesting company. That's it's multinational healthcare backed platform that addresses early allergen introduction in infants. And then By Heart, which is a vertically integrated, clinically validated infant nutrition platform in the formula space. And so, you know, those three companies, you know, really kind of came together to help us launch what is sort of an early nutrition thesis and really being mindful of Gen Z mom, right? And dad, of course. But, you know, we, we do believe that Gen Z mom is coming and we anticipate there'll be increased prioritization on the consumption of healthy, sustainable, transparent products that are also really mission aligned with the values of their parents and, and sort of solving their parenting problems. The other you know, sort of thesis that we spent a great deal of time in, um, particularly in the back half of last year, is in personalization. And um, we think that personalization is going to continue to mature and will be used more widely by consumer companies. There's sort of a merging of digital platforms and data and science to allow companies to you know, really you know, offer personalization in a new place um, in the consumer's uh, set of expectations. 
you know, we made investments, particularly in that space. You know, I mentioned Circle, which is a hydration platform that's technology labeled, uh, enabled, um, and sort of an IP protected cartridge technology. Um, but we also made an investment in a company called Gainful, which is personalized sports nutrition that customizes, you know, protein powder tailored to specific customers' you know, needs and goals. But even also Yumi is in and of itself, you know, a, a type of personalization in terms of our perspective on, on the platform. I've spoken to brands who are still only digitally native, and they said that the reason why they've they've held off retail or just haven't gone to retail is because online you're able to you don't really get that same degree of personalization that you do in retail, and they don't really want to lose that focus of the business. So I love to hear how you think about maybe omni-channel strategy for a company that really heavily relies on um, personalization. So I think that personalization is a broad concept. Right, you have the personalization where it's data collection that applies to formulation of the product, and formulations are meaning a specific set of data provided, you know, to adhere to a specific set of needs. One way that you know we're seeing personalization adapted is you, we look at a product line like Circle, and it's a cartridge system that allows personalization in every sip. Right, you can ch- move the dial from zero to nine depending on how intensive a flavor experience you want with every sip. That's another version of personalization. And so something that's very easily translatable to retail. That's helpful. That's very helpful. How has COVID impacted um, the recent trends? Has it accelerated um, all of these trends, what you're thinking about? Has it changed any of your perspectives? I think it's, it's only accelerated what was a thesis that we had going in, right? We were always investing in better for you brands, um, particularly in food and beverage, but also we'd recently expanded into personal care and beauty, and even actually in, in pet. So for us, you know, we had a number of companies in our portfolio that were functional food and beverage products. Um, we had been investing in sort of this notion of food as health. Um, but, you know, increasingly there is, you know, even more of a demand now probably for what we're characterizing as self-care products, um, which includes, you know, some of the, you know, types of more traditional personalization that y- you've come to, you know, sort of come across in the past. Conscious consumerism is something that we've become increasingly aware of. I, I do think that sustainability was an area that people were investing in pre-COVID. We, we certainly were. But I think that the acceleration of you know, sort of these ESG-forward platforms and you know, sort of this idea that products need to be ethically sourced and clean ingredients, like that only intensified during you know, what was a global you know, a moment of awareness around um, what people were consuming. I think that you know, ultimately, people are starting to very much feel that they have to have conviction, you know, and, and sort of a positive sentiment, whether it be social or economic or environmental, you know, a, about the products that they're purchasing. And, you know, even, you know, we look at sort of the COVID period, it's, it wasn't just COVID that happened in the past couple of years. You know, we saw, you know, a, a very much a reprioritization of people's social agendas, right? And people becoming more tolerant and more self-aware in terms of accepting each other and supporting one another. So I think that there's sort of COVID and then there's also the macro trends of um, people investing into lifestyle products that, you know, mirror their own experiences, you know, and, and are representative of the types of missions that, you know, individuals are having at this point. What's one thing you would change about venture capital? I think that this has been an interesting period where people are starting to really think about mental health, right? As, you know, it's about mental health of the teams that you invest in, mental health of your founders. And, you know, we've always tried to bring 
a little bit more of an emotional intelligence to our investment style. We don't fall into a classic VC model or classic private equity model. And that's just a nature that I got to build this business, you know, sort of in the way that makes me comfortable, right? And form the partnerships in a way that excite me. So for me, um, I think it's probably continuing on this sort of prioritization that's developed in terms of thinking about how can we support the teams? You know, how can we build cultures that people are committed to and feel good about? You know, there's, there's definitely, I think, a historical, you know, at the board, board level, you know, there always was a, you know, what are, what's our, our hiring plan? But I do think that I've seen a market difference in the past two years and in particular the past year that I hope will stay with investing in, in companies, which will be to continue to talk about mental well-being at the board level. Because I think that that is something that we've learned as unfortunately through this period is a tough lesson, um, but it's an important one that we should remember going forward. Yeah, that's a really, really good thought about team building during these times, um, especially in companies that are, that of course have to be remote first and, and really think about the actual mental health of the entire uh, company and how do you actually encapsulate that, that culture. And how do you take care of the people you know, sort of running the, the companies and make sure that everyone's motivated? I mean, it's, you know, everyone's been challenged in the past couple of years. We all look at, you know, sort of our, our lives are so in flux. It's a very human time, you know, and I, and I hope that that humanity will continue, right? There's no reason why we need to revert back to a time where we hide when our kids walk in the room and start interrupting a call. Like we, we all are people, right? And, and those are, you know, sort of basic disruptions in our day that we go through, but that doesn't impact our ability to do business. It kind of also just, it kind of couples as well this macro trend that you discussed earlier with Gen Z about, you know, being your authentic self, right? And authenticity and actually taking that almost, as you say, like into your work where like if you are remote and your kids happen to walk in on a meeting, like that's reality, right? And we don't have to apologize for it. Why are we apologizing? Because we all have, or a lot of us have kids, right? And there, we're all you know, sort of balancing things that are important to us. So I, you know, it's it's an interesting thing that we all sort of historically felt like to be our most professional self. We had to hide, you know, sort of all of the things that you know sort of come into our day to day. Um, you can still be highly professional, even if you are interrupted by, in your case, a five-month-old, or in my case, a nine-year-old and eleven-year-old walking in, and you sort of pulling on you and demanding something. Right? You know, th- these are their competing priorities. Doesn't mean that we're not doing a good job at both. My final question to you is: What's one piece of advice that you have for founders currently building? I think that founders always need to do a good job setting expectations. And that's setting expectations up front before entering in the relationship, setting expectations after you partner with investors and making sure that there is like absolute transparency in the relationship. You know, in as much as we have confidence in your capabilities and your execution, it's still, nobody likes surprises, right? And it still will always be an easier transition if we're having you know communications real time as problems are coming up and just be having the ability even to die, you never know where help will come from too you know the reason why you choose a partner is you want to make sure your partners sort of culture aligned right and that you have champions but you know there's supposed to be resources that you know the investors come with that help you sort of build out your halo and you know kind of give you you know a, a greater operating team than even what's within the business the expectations that you set with your investors is the, the baseline of what they're going to be looking to to measure how you performed. 
right? And so, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing because I think that founders really always need to best understand that whatever you put down, you know, in terms of going to the partnership or at the board level or in terms of budgets and things like that, like the investors are going to take you at your word for that. And so you want to make sure that you're setting expectations that you feel that you can achieve and also that you're setting expectations that the investors can rely on, right? Because if you're setting the expectations that are achievable, at the very least, you can hopefully outperform those expectations. The worst thing to do is underperform, right? And to have set the bar higher, come in lower, and then people are resetting kind of their perspective on the business or capabilities or the accomplishments, because you may have accomplished a lot, but it just wasn't as high as what you said. What do you think at the board level, first-time founders coming to a board meeting, what have you found they have the hardest time maybe grappling with? I don't want to say mistakes that they made, because that might be over, but like just have a hard time actually understanding, possibly. So there's a couple different like formulaic things that founders can do to set a great positive tone with incoming board members. The first is to align on the board package ahead of time. Make sure that your constituents on the board all have the information in their hands that they want to look at, right? Because it's when you spend a lot of time at the board, you know, at preparing board decks, and you get to the board meeting and the, and the board doesn't have what they need, you've expended a lot of energy into something that's not meeting their needs in terms of feeling like there's visibility into the business. So I would say, you know, aligning early, and that goes to reporting packages and things like that. It's just, it's just finding an alignment over what is the information that's useful to help you support me as a founder. I also think that one thing I've seen, you know, in particular, we've got a team that's unbelievably adept at navigating positives and negatives by, they do, you know, pre-conversations with the board, right? And so, um, and it, it doesn't always have to be, you know, you know, anything that's challenging, you know, but they make sure that they preview large topics so they can get ahead of questions and have the information readily available, but also so that, you know, the board meeting isn't a time of sort of just gut reactions. This has been great. Jordan, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we got to do this. And I definitely appreciate so much what you're doing, but I also feel like I've got to introduce you to a couple of only nutrition brands now. <laughs> yes, please, you do. You do. I know, we got to get you some product. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And there you have it. It was amazing chatting with Jordan. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.